Notre Dame burns in the West Mourns. Bernie Sanders heads over to Fox News. And Nancy Pelosi struggles with the fresh faces. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Man, yesterday was a rough news day. I mean, watching Notre Dame burn, obviously, the place has incredible historical significance. We're going to get to all of that in just one second. But first, let's talk about your business. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place where you can go that hiring is simple, fast, and smart. It's a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the very first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash DailyWire. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-A-I-L-Y-W-I-R-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. ZipRecruiter is indeed the smartest way to hire. There's a reason we use ZipRecruiter over here at the Daily Wire. And you can check them out right now for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. When you do, you get the best employees and it helps you filter out all the bad resumes. So check them out. ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. So obviously the big news of the day yesterday was the burning down of most of Notre Dame's cathedral. There, the, the outer structure was indeed saved, according to French Fire Service's Sky News, says flames broke out at the 12th century building on Monday evening, quickly devastating the spire and roof and sending plumes of smoke into the sky. One fire was serious, firefighter was seriously injured. Local media say police were treating the blaze as an accident. French President Emmanuel Macron said he was so sad tonight to see this part of us all burn and declared a national emergency. Speaking from the scene in Paris, he expressed sympathy with Catholics around the world following the terrible tragedy, but added that the worst had been avoided, and then he vowed to launch an international fundraising campaign. Wealthy investors have already pledged to give 100 million euros for the rebuilding of Notre Dame. France's interior minister originally warned that the 400 firefighters scrambled to the scene would not be enough to save the cathedral, but a junior minister from the department later said they were more optimistic that the cathedral itself could be spared. A French firefighter official confirmed that Notre Dame's structure and two towers had indeed been saved from total destruction. Prime Minister Theresa May said her thoughts are with the people of France tonight and with the emergency services who are fighting the terrible blaze. The video of it was just astonishing and shocking. The area where the spire once was was still burning with sparks falling from the cathedral's vaulted ceiling as of Monday night. People outside were singing hymns and gasping as they watched much of the much of the cathedral burned to the ground. The Paris mayor, Anne Hidalgo, urged the public to respect the security perimeter around the cathedral while firefighters tackled the terrible blaze, added that the areas close to the scene were evacuated. Rich Lowry over at National Review has a good review about what exactly Notre Dame means. Does Notre Dame stand for so many qualities that we now lack? Patience and staying power, the cultivation of beauty, a deep religious faith, the cultural confidence and ambition to build a timeless monument of our civilization, that the collapse of its spire was almost too much to bear, the great novelist Victor Hugo, who did so much to revive interest in the cathedral when it was in disrepair in the 19th century, wrote how, quote, every surface, every stone of this venerable pile is a page of the history, not only of the country, but of science and art. It was the work of generations completed across three centuries in a triumph over considerable architectural and logistical challenges. It arose at the original site of a pagan temple. Thousands of tons of stone had to be transported from outside Paris, one ox cart or barge at a time, to achieve its soaring height and hold up its ceiling and walls it relied on the architectural innovations of the rib vault and the flying buttress. France built 80 cathedrals and 500 large churches around, across this period, says Rich Lowry. There's only one Notre Dame of Paris, a Gothic jewel, whose towers prior to the advent of the Eiffel Tower were the tallest structure in the city. It is, or one hates to think was, adorned by what are culturally significant artifacts in their own right, the statuary meant to illustrate the story of the Bible and to all worshipers who couldn't read, the stained glass windows that took ingenuity to embed in stone walls and are themselves artistic marvels, the organ with more than 8,000 pipes, the bells with their own names, including the largest, the masterpiece Emmanuel, dating back to the 15th century and recast in 1681, not to mention the religious relics that mean so much to the Catholic faithful. 
It has been the site of countless processions and services to petition and thank God on behalf of the French nation. It is where illustrious marriages and funerals occurred, where Napoleon crowned himself emperor, where Charles de Gaulle attended a mass to celebrate the liberation of Paris in 1944, rifle fire echoing outside. It survived the rampages of iconoclastic Huguenots in the 16th century, the depredation of radicals during the French Revolution into the 18th century. They transformed it into a shrine to the cult of reason, used it as a warehouse and wanted to melt down the bells, and incidental damage during two world wars in the 20th century. All the while, it accumulated layers in history and meaning. Its great advocate Hugo, author of the famous Hunchback of Notre Dame, wrote of how the greatest productions of architecture are not so much the work of individuals as of a community are rather the offspring of a nation's labor than the outcome of individual genius, the deposit of a whole people, the heaped-up treasure of centuries, the residuum left by successive evaporations of human society, in a word, a species of formations. Each wave of time leaves its coating of alluvium, each race deposits its layers on the monuments, each individual contributes his stone to it. And that, of course, is exactly right. It's amazing. Yesterday, I tweeted something out that I thought, frankly, was, was really uncontroversial. I tweeted out that Notre Dame was a was a totem to Western civilization and of Western civilization. And people got very upset with this, particularly a lot of folks on the left were very upset with this. I tweeted out, if we wish to uphold the beauty and profundity of the Notre Dame Cathedral, that means refamiliarizing ourselves with the philosophy and religious principles that built it. That means refamiliarizing re ourselves with the precepts of Catholicism, with Western history, with what Catholicism was, with how it contributed to the West. And all of this stuff, seems deeply important to me. This became very controversial. A lot of folks on the left were very upset with me for suggesting this. They said, well, why can't we just appreciate it just as a, as a piece of art? You can appreciate it however you want, but if you want to know why so many people in the West were deeply affected by the burning of Notre Dame, it wasn't just because it was iconic. It's because Notre Dame holds deeper meaning because it is a totem of a chain of history that culminates in the modern West. That's why Notre Dame means something different than just any building anywhere on earth burning than the Taj Mahal burning, for example, which would be, of course, a phenomenal tragedy, but would not have quite the same resonance in the Western mind as Notre Dame burning, of course. And you can see the sort of, the sort of anodyne version of mourning for the cathedral from Ilhan Omar, who, of course, is no big fan of Western civilization. I mean, she said so. She says America was founded on slavery and genocide. I can only assume she means that the rest of the West was as well. She tweeted out, art and architecture have a unique ability to help us connect across our differences and bring people together in important ways, thinking of the people of Paris and praying for every first responder trying to save this wonder. Uh, again, it's fine to look at Notre Dame as just art and architecture, but it has deeper resonance than that. And that was the point that I was making, is that the deeper resonance of Notre Dame is about the faith that inspired Notre Dame. And listen, this is coming from a Jew. This is coming from an Orthodox Jew. Notre Dame apparently had certain statues that are anti-Semitic in nature, talking about the supersession of the Catholic Church over Jews in the past. That's important to remember. It's also important to remember that Notre Dame is, again, a historical monument to the chain of history of which we are a part. I wrote an entire book about this. My book, The Right Side of History, talks about this chain of history, the Judeo-Christian history of the West, and how Judaism and Christianity combined with Greek reason in play and intention created the world in which we live. I want to read you a section from the book talking about the period during which Notre Dame was built. Notre Dame, of course, was built during the 12th and 13th centuries. It took a couple of centuries to complete, which in and of itself is an amazing testament to the human mind and to the power of the eternal to inspire the human mind. Because after all, why plant a tree if you're not going to get to sit in its shade? Why build a building if you know that you're not going to get to complete it? Because our task is not to complete the building. Our task is to join in the building of that structure in the first place. Here's what I talk about in my book with regard to this period in Western history. From the fall of Rome through the 12th century, Christianity would spread from its base in the Italian peninsula to the British Isles, France, Germany, and eventually the Nordic countries as well. While Augustine had posited a great divide between the city of God and the city of man, the Catholic Church was quite active in the city of man. The church received tithes from Christians the continent over, had its own ecclesiastical courts. By the 10th century, the church was the single largest landowner in Western Europe. Kings found their legitimacy through the conduit of the church and battled with the church to expand their own power. Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV walked barefoot in the snow to earn back the approval of Pope Gregory VII. Henry II of England, 1133 to 1189, had himself flogged in order to win back the approval of his Christian population after accidentally ordering the death of Archbishop Thomas Becket. Popular history maintains that this period represents the Dark Ages, but that's simply inaccurate. Progress continued as Christianity spread. The monastic system centralized learning in monasteries where priests and nuns devoted themselves to ascetic pursuit of divine understanding. 
In educational terms, this devotion revolved around scripture. The Benedictine monks, for example, lived under the rules created by St. Benedictine 480 to 547, a set of orders regarding the hierarchy of monasteries, the behavior by which to abide, and the requirements of work. The arts thrived in the monastic system. Manuscripts were preserved by monks devoted to writing new copies and beautifying them. In the monastic system, the liberal arts taught by the Greeks and the Romans, as championed by Cicero and Seneca, among others, survived, albeit in spiritualized form. Augustine himself, despite his distaste for paganism, suggested that the liberal arts education could be hijacked for service to God. Augustine likened such cultural appropriation to the Jews taking Egyptian gold during the biblical exodus. These liberal arts were categorized by the philosopher Bothius into the famous quadrivarium, music, arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy, and trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Meanwhile, the Middle Ages saw technological revolution in agriculture, the rise of commerce, the institution of new forms of art ranging from polyphonic music to Gothic architecture. Notre Dame would be a perfect example of Gothic architecture. It also saw new developments in the art of war with technological developments that would allow the West to defeat its enemies in the course of coming centuries. While many historians tout the power of Islamic civilization during this time period, and Islamic civilization did thrive on the Arabian Peninsula particularly, when Islamic civilization came up against Western civilization at the Battle of Tours, Islamic forces were soundly defeated. By the 8th century, Christian leaders were crusading against enslavement, except notably for the enslavement of Muslim war captives. Monasteries were engaging in proto-capitalism as well. Furthermore, the Catholic Church was responsible for learning and teaching. Virtually all literacy sprang from monasteries. Still, the modern world could not have been created under these circumstances, is what I write in my book. Faith provided individual moral purpose. Faith provided collective moral purpose. But while individual capacity was bolstered by the doctrinal belief in free will and the value of work, reason had been made secondary to faith. While collective capacity was bolstered by the presence of a strong social fabric, the all-encompassing power of the Catholic Church and the rule of monarchs meant that individual choice was heavily circumscribed. Even education had been radically reoriented toward the church. All true knowledge lay in the Bible. The liberal arts were only useful so far as they bolstered the biblical story. For science and democracy to take hold in the West, reason would have to be elevated once more. In a second, I'm going to explain how the reintroduction of reason did happen in the West and within the Catholic Church. Again, re reorienting ourselves to this history means that Notre Dame means so much more to us because we look at it and it means something beyond just a beautiful building. We'll get to that in just one second. First, when the founders crafted the Constitution, the first thing they did was to make sacred the rights of the individual to share their ideas without limitation by their government. The second right they enumerated was the right of the population to protect that speech and their own persons with force. You know how strongly I believe in these principles. I'm a gun owner. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility, and building rifles is no different. Bravo Company Manufacturing was started in a garage by a Marine veteran more than two decades ago to build a professional-grade product that meets combat standards. BCM believes the same level of protection should be provided to every American, regardless of whether they are a private citizen or a professional. BCM is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life-saving equipment, and they assume that every rifle leaving their shop will be used in a life-or-death situation by a responsible citizen, law enforcement officer, or a soldier overseas. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand-assembled and tested by Americans to a life-saving standard. BCM feels a moral responsibility as Americans to provide tools that will not fail the user when it's not just a paper target, but someone, God forbid, coming to do you harm. BCM works with leading instructors of marksmanship from top levels of America's special ops forces who can teach the skills necessary to defend yourself, your family, or others. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to bravocompanymfg.com. That's bravocompanymfg.com. If you need more convincing, you can find out even more about them at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusa. Amazing company. I know the people who run it. It is a great company. Go check them out right now at bravocompanymfg.com. So we're talking about the history of Western civilization and where Catholicism, where Notre Dame fits into that history because it means more to us when we watch that building burn than just a building burning. So I've been talking about the dominance of the Catholic Church and the reintroduction of reason to balance out the, the faith orientation of Catholicism. That process began, I write in my book, The Right Side of History, with the reintroduction of Greek reason to the West in the 11th century. Christianity, comfortable now in its dominance, could afford more exploratory thinking when it came to secular learning. This bred a new movement called scholasticism, and that movement encouraged Christians to extend the providence of God's dominance over all of the areas of human knowledge. Scholasticism would open the door for a renewed investigation into the unity between God and his created universe and between faith and reason. Leading scholastic Hugh of St. Victor, 1096 to 1141, famously said, learn everything, later you will see that nothing is superfluous. He followed through on his own injunction by attempting to write a book that covered the gamut of human knowledge known as a summa. 
Scholasticism became the dominant philosophy of the church. The church launched a program of support for universities, the University of Paris, also known as the Sorbonne, the University of Bologna, the University of Oxford. As Thomas E. Woods Jr. writes, the church provided special protection to university students by offering them what was known as benefit of clergy. The popes intervened on behalf of the university on numerous occasions. And then the Christian world moved into Thomism under Thomas Aquinas. So the, the bottom line here, and the reason that I'm recounting this history, is because if we don't reorient ourselves to this history, why are these buildings important? They're just buildings after all. Sure, they're beautiful, but they are more than beautiful. They're testaments to an ongoing battle between faith and reason that has bred the West and that, that battle has had victims. That battle has had people who have suffered, for sure. But that does not change the story of the West. We are part of that great river of history. And that's why when we see something from our past burned to the ground like that, it's devastating to everybody involved. Okay, meanwhile, speaking of people who don't know their history, so Bernie Sanders has apparently taken the lead in a new Emerson poll in the Democratic 2020 race. Mayor Pete is on the move as well. He is up to 9%. He's getting all sorts of glowing media attention right now. And of course, people are very, very excited about the fact that he speaks French. So yesterday, while Notre Dame was burning, they asked him for comment, and then he gave comments in French, which is cool. John Kerry could do it as well. So can Melania Trump, I guess. But I guess that that's neat for what it's worth. In any case, Bernie Sanders has, has taken the temporary lead, and people are concerned in the Democratic Party that his win in the nominating process will mean, I guess, the end of the chances to stop Donald Trump. And this has led to the New York Times actually writing a full piece about it in which they talk about how terrible it would be if it were to be that that Bernie Sanders, if he would win the nomination, how terrible all of this would be. So the New York Times suggests that there is a new group that is out there fighting Bernie Sanders. Quote, when Leah Dautry, a former Democratic Party official, addressed a closed door gathering of about 100 wealthy liberal donors in San Francisco last month, all it took was a review of the 2020 primary rules to throw a scare into them. Democrats are likely to go into their convention next summer without having settled on a presidential nominee, says Ms. Daughtry, who ran her party's conventions in 2008 and 2016, the last two times the nomination was contested. And Senator Bernie Sanders is well-positioned to be one of the last candidates standing, she noted. I think I freaked them out, said Ms. Daughtry. From Kanap-filled fundraisers on the coast to the cloakrooms of Washington, mainstream Democrats are increasingly worried that their efforts to defeat President Trump in 2020 could be complicated by Sanders in a political scenario all too reminiscent of how Trump himself seized the Republican nomination in 2016. Well, this is what I have been saying here on the program for months, is that Bernie Sanders is, in fact, well-positioned to do serious damage in the Democratic primaries. Why? Well, because he's got somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of the vote, and it is a very solid 25 to 30 percent. Everybody else is moving around. Beto's been bouncing around between 8 and 12. Biden has been bouncing around anywhere between 35 and 25. Bernie Sanders is incredibly stable, and Joe Biden is going to get torn down as the frontrunner. And everybody in the Democratic Party feels the need to pay homage to Bernie Sanders in much the same way that many in the Republican Party felt the need to pay homage to President Trump because Trump was in fact this deeply popular figure and extraordinarily famous to boot. Republicans basically ignored Trump during the 2016 election cycle, thinking this can't last, the guy's gotta collapse. And when he collapses, for sure his support will go to me. This was the strategy of both Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. It's why they ignored Trump and went after each other. Of course, Trump lasted the test of time and the other candidates did not. You can see very much the same thing here happening with Bernie Sanders. If you attack Bernie, the Bernie bros come after you. If you leave Bernie alone and you go after Joe Biden and you try to cannibalize his support, then perhaps you're able to pick up support in spite of Bernie Sanders. But that means that Bernie Sanders is still standing. And this is freaking out the Democratic bigwigs. The New York Times reports how some Democrats are beginning to ask, do they thwart a 70-something candidate from outside the party structure who is immune to intimidation or incentive and wield support from an unwavering base without simply reinforcing his, the establishment is out to get me message, the same grievance that Trump used to great effect. Stopping Sanders, or at least preventing a contentious convention, could prove difficult for Democrats. He has enormous financial advantages. He's already substantially outraising his Democratic rivals. He is well positioned to benefit from a historically large field of candidates that would splinter the vote. And he'd pick up a formidable number of delegates for the nomination because there are no superdelegates this time. That prospect is not only spooking establishment-aligned Democrats, it's also creating tensions about what, if anything, should be done to halt Sanders. There's a Never Sanders movement that apparently is cropping up among Democrats. Some in the party still harbor anger over the 2016 race when he ran against Hillary Clinton and his ongoing resistance to becoming a Democrat. But his critics are chiefly motivated by a fear that nominating an avowed socialist would all but ensure President Trump a second term. David Brock, who is a Clintonista hack, 
He's uh, the, the founder of Media Matters. He says there's a growing realization that Sanders could end up winning this thing, or certainly that he stays in so long he damages the actual winner. He has had discussions with other operatives about an anti-Sanders campaign. He believes it should commence sooner rather than later. Man, the bloodbath in this primary is going to be amusing to watch from the right and horrifying to watch if you are on the left. R.T. Ryback, the former Minneapolis mayor, who was vice chairman of the DNC in 2016, complained bitterly about the party's tilt toward Mrs. Clinton back then, warned that it would backfire if his fellow mainstream Democrats start with the idea that you're going to try to stop somebody. If the party fractures again, or if we even have anybody raising an eyebrow of I'm not happy about this, we're going to lose, and they'll have this loss on their hands. So now the Never Sanders movement is getting pilloried by the pro-Sanders movement as people who will be responsible if Trump wins re-election. All of this sounds very familiar. To a not insignificant number of Democrats, New York's, the, the New York Times says, Mr. Sanders' populist agenda is exactly what the country needs, and he has proved his mettle. The good news for his foes is that his polling is down significantly in early nominating states from 2016. He is viewed more negatively among Democrats than many of his top rivals. He has already publicly vowed to support the party's nominee if he falls short. But I'm not sure that matters. If you recall, President Trump's negatives were much higher than his opponents, and he cruised to the nomination on the back of 35 to 40% support. It started off at 25 to 30, and then it grew to 30 to 35, and by the end, he was winning 35 to 40% in all of the major nominating contests. Sanders is already sending blistering letters to his enemies. He sent a blistering letter to the Center for American Progress, which is a Clintonista outfit, accusing them of playing a destructive role in democratic politics and being beholden to the corporate money they receive. He's also trying to woo a lot of veteran party strategists in places like Iowa. Tad Vine is Sanders' longtime strategist. He says, if anybody thinks Bernie Sanders is incapable of doing politics, they haven't seen him in Congress for 30 years. No, what we've seen is a guy who actually hasn't gotten anything done, but he has maintained his spot, and that's all he really has to do. So Democrats are starting to get very, very nervous. Very nervous. The matter of what to do about Bernie and the larger imperative of party unity has, for example, hovered over a series of previously undisclosed Democratic dinners in New York and Washington, organized by longtime party financier Bernard Schwartz. The gatherings have included scores from the moderate or center-left wing of the party, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senator Chuck Schumer, former Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia, Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, and the president of the Center for American Progress, Neera Tanden. He did us a disservice in the last election, said Mr. Schwartz, a longtime Clinton supporter who said he's going to support Biden. Man, if I had to lay money right now, I'd be hard-pressed not to lay it on Bernie, considering the fanaticism of the people who support him and the fact that Democrats have no strategy for stopping him. In a second, we'll show you that Bernie Sanders went on Fox News last night. It was kind of interesting. We'll get to that in a second. First, it can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. If the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you could feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Do not do this ever. This is a stupid and bad idea. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be, and they cannot stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take the train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal. What used to be you, well, then you got a problem. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop, even if it sees you, and the result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. Just remember, one thing, you can stop. Trains cannot. Go check, the, make sure that you, please, for God's sake, don't run train crossings. My goodness, it's just a huge, huge mistake. It's amazing that people think they can do this. I mean, there are a number of deaths every year from people who think that they can just cross a train crossing in the middle of a signal and that everything will be hunky-dory. That's not the way this works. So be smart, stop, because the trains can't. All right, so Bernie Sanders was on Fox News last night. And while he was on Fox News, he basically laid out his agenda, which is you're going to pay more. You're going to spend a lot of money. So he's asked about healthcare, and he says, yeah, my agenda is you're going to be, he's with Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. He says, yeah, you know, you're going to, it'll cost more money from your pocket. Let's just say hypothetically. Okay. You're a, you are um, self-employed, and you have, you've got a husband and two kids, okay? Family of four. Do you know how much that family is paying today for healthcare? How many? $28,000 a year. Okay. All right, we're spending $11,000 per person. We are saying to that family of four, you ain't going to pay that $28,000. You're not paying any more premiums. You're not paying any more co-payments. You're not paying any more deductibles. How's that? $28,000 you are not paying. But does that mean you're not going to pay something? Of course it does. You're going to pay more in taxes. Okay, you're going to pay more in taxes. I love that he says it costs you $28,000. Your employer is paying that. So your employer is presumably not going to pay for your health insurance anymore. And that means that your pay is presumably going to be cut. So your top line pay is going to be cut. And then you're going to pay a lot more in taxes. 
Now, how much more in taxes? A lot more in taxes, because the fact is that if you want to pay more in taxes, a nationalized healthcare system is the best way to do it. There's a reason. The Nordic countries all have tax rates kicking in at anywhere in, in Norway. It's 36% because of the giant oil slush fund. But in other places like Denmark, you've got top tax brackets kicking in at like 50 to 60% if you make $60,000 a year. That's what Sanders is talking about. It's funny that nobody ever asks him a follow-up. Like, what kind of tax rates are you talking about and at what level will they kick in? Nobody asks him that because it would be awkward for him to answer. In any case, Sanders then continued. He said, listen, healthcare isn't free, except that he keeps promising everybody it's going to be free. So there's that. It will drive up taxes to pay for health care. And not just the wealthy will pay for that. The middle class oh, will also okay, pay for very it. Very good. So how do you justify it? And All right, Martha, what are you not including in your discussion? You tell me. I will tell you. You're not going to pay any health insurance premiums. You're going to pay one Let's or the other. But look, Martha, pay one or the other. Martha. Whether it's in your income oh, tax or your payroll tax, you're right, going to pay. Look. Healthcare is not free. You never heard me suggest that we're going to match. You just said it was going to be free for everyone. It's going to be free at the point of when you use it. Okay, it's free at the point when you use it. That, that, that's idiotic. I mean, that, that, that means it's not free. So if I pay a subscription fee to go to Daily Wire, it is then free when I click on Daily Wire. It is not free because I am paying the subscription fee. If I pay taxes for something, that makes it not free. I love that Bernie Sanders has been getting away with this for a while. Martha McCallum calls him on this. And Sanders simply falls apart. This wasn't the only point at which Sanders fell apart. The most amusing point at which Sanders fell apart is he was asked, okay, you know, Bernie, you make a lot of money. And he does. He's been making about a million dollars a year for the last several years. And he was asked specifically, okay, well, you know, you could just pay extra taxes. So why aren't you paying the extra taxes? And Bernie Sanders had no good answer to this because, of course, if you are a socialist and you want the government to have more money, you could do this. Your taxes do show that you're a millionaire. You did make a million in 2016, 2017. You're right, the 561 in 2018. But your marginal tax rate, tax rate was 26% because of President yeah. Trump's tax cuts. So why not say, you know, I'm leading this revolution. I'm not going to take those. <laughs> Come on. But there he, I am, I paid the taxes that I owe. And by the way, why don't you got Donald Trump up here and ask him how much he pays in taxes? Yeah. Well, would you be willing to pay 52% on the money that you made? Oh, you can volunteer. You can send a check. Oh, you can volunteer, too. We have a... But you suggested, have, you suggested that uh, that's hey, Martha, what everybody in your bracket should do. And Martha, why don't you give? You make more money than I well, do. Why I don't you I give? didn't suggest a wealth tax. And she's not running for president. And All right, but we're going to... Okay, it is, it's hilarious to me that Bernie Sanders is saying to Martha McCallum, well, why don't you pay more in taxes? Why don't you? Um, she asked you because you say that everyone should, and she has not said that. That's the thing. It, it's amazing. I, I love the Bernie bros in the audience who are just like, yeah, Bernie, saying Martha McCallum should pay more taxes. She's not running for president. She did not suggest a wealth tax. You did. It is, it, so he's running away from the implications of his own program because this is what all socialists do in the end. They sort of like their lifestyle but they don't want to, and they don't want to sacrifice it, but they do want to seem as though they care a lot about government expenditures and tax rates. There, there's a, the voluntary minimum is what you pay when you pay taxes. That is your, your, the, the minimum that you pay or the government comes and gets you. You can always sign a check for more. Bernie Sanders is not doing that. Look, Bernie Sanders is incredibly radical. He made that clear last night. He was talking about abortion. He, says, he suggested that aborting babies until birth would be a worthwhile goal. And then he suggested it was sexism to believe otherwise. With regard to abortion, do you believe that a woman should be able to terminate a pregnancy up until the moment of birth? Look, I think that that happens very, very rarely, and I think this is being made into a political issue. Okay? So I think it's rare, it's being made into a political issue, but at the end of the day, I believe that the decision over abortion belongs to a woman and a physician, not the federal government, not the state government, and not the local government. It's being made into a political issue. Now, it was funny. A lot of the commentators yesterday were noting, wow, look how on Fox News people are cheering for Bernie. Yeah, who do you think shows up to a Bernie town hall? Is a bunch of right-wingers show up to a Bernie town hall? It's a bunch of Bernie fans. So listen, it was very smart of Bernie to appear on Fox News. It made him look good. It made him look as though he was willing to take hard questions from people outside his own party, which apparently nobody else in his party is willing to do. And Bernie's populism does have some crossover with Trumpian populism. It does. And this is how you end up with a situation in which Brett Baer pulled the audience on Medicare for All and people cheered and the media were like, oh my God, people in a Fox News audience cheering for Bernie? 
yeah, they're Bernie fans. That's why they're there. They're there because they like Bernie. Who shows up to a Bernie town hall unless you like him? This audience has a lot of Democrats in it. It has uh, Republicans, independents, Democratic socialists, conservatives. Uh, I want to ask the audience a question, if you could raise your hand here. A show of hands of how many people get their insurance from work, private insurance, right now. How many get it from private insurance? Okay, now of those, how many are willing to transition to what the senator says, a government-run system? The raucous applause from the same people who are applauding all night. And again, it was very funny to watch disingenuous people in the media saying, look at that Fox News audience cheering Bernie. Now he's popular among Fox News audience. Yeah, sure. I'm sure that's what happened right there. I'll show you the rest of Bernie Sanders' radical pitch. He has no actual on-the-ground hard policy suggestions that are anywhere close to reasonable, but that's not what Democrats are looking for these days. We'll get to that in just one second. First, no one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got time for all that traffic, parking, lugging all your mail and packages? It's a real hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com. It is one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts you can't get even at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail, not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. It saves you time. It saves you money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. Right now, my listeners get a special offer. It includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on that microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Shapiro. That is Stamps.com. Enter Shapiro. Once again, Stamps.com and enter Shapiro for that special deal. All righty, we're going to get to more Bernie Sanders. Plus, the Democrats in Congress running scared from their own base. We'll get to all that in just one second. First, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. For $9.99 a month, you can subscribe to dailywire.com. When you do, you get the rest of this show live. You get two additional hours of this show every afternoon. We have so much good stuff coming up for you this afternoon. Guests like Bishop Bishop Robert Barron, who's going to be showing up to discuss the history of Notre Dame. We're going to be having on Daniel Hannon, the EU member of parliament from Britain. It's, he's going to discuss Western civilization as well as Brexit. So we have lots of good stuff that comes up for you every afternoon. Two hours you can't get. Unless you subscribe, go check that out. Plus, you can ask me questions in the mailbag. It means you get our Sunday special a day early on Saturday. All sorts of amazing stuff happening over at Daily Wire. And with your annual subscription, you get this. The very greatest in all beverage vessels, the leftist tears, hot or cold tumbler. Look upon it and weep for you have it not. But you could. All you have to do is subscribe for 99 bucks a year. Go check that out right now. Also, subscribe at YouTube and iTunes. Please leave us a review. It always helps us. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. Worthwhile pointing out at this point that Bernie Sanders has indeed released his tax returns. And what they show is that he has not given an extraordinary amount of charity total. And, and that's nothing new. Many Democrats do not give an enormous amount of charity. The dirty little secret about charity is that as charitable as Democrats pretend to be when they are seizing the money from your pocket, it is Republicans who are giving the vast majority of charity on a per capita basis. It's really, it's really astonishing. So Bernie Sanders apparently gave something like $10,000 the first year that he made a million bucks. He gave like 10 grand. The second year, he gave something like 36 grand, which is not too bad. But this is not supremely shocking. Apparently, according to the Washington Post, Bernie Sanders and his wife gave $19,000 to charity out of an income of $566,000 last year, or 3.4%. Kamala Harris released 15 years of her tax returns on Sunday. She and her husband earned $1.9 million last year. They gave 27 grand to charity, 1.4%, and she gave no charity at all during her first three years as California's Attorney General. Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota and her husband donated about $6,000, $6,600 of their $340,000 income to charity last year. It's about 2%. Kirsten Gillibrand made 215 grand last year and gave $3,700 to charity. The most generous was Senator Elizabeth Warren, she gave about $50,000 last year of their $906,000 income. Jay Inslee and his wife, who recently re- released 12 years of returns, they earned an income of $203,000 in 2018 and gave about eight grand to charity. Now, who exactly has been extremely charitable? Well, Mitt Romney was extremely charitable. In 2012, 
when he finally released his tax returns, it showed that he and his wife had given away $4 million out of the $13.7 million they took in during the previous year. Almost 30% of what they earned that year, they gave away in charity. By the way, speaking of charitable people, Barack and Michelle Obama gave away 22% of their income to charity in 2011. They donated 172 grand out of 790 grand. You know who is particularly stingy? Joe and Jill Biden. They gave 1.5% of their income to charity, about 5,500 bucks out of $379,000. And in 2008, you'll remember that Joe Biden released in 10 years, over the past 10 years, he had given over 10 years, 3,700 bucks to charity, an average of $369 a year. So really ramping up that spending. It's always fun to, it is always fun to, to see how much money Democrats actually give to charity as opposed to the supposed charitable mindset that they employ. And you saw that again when you see Bernie Sanders scoffing at paying extra taxes and suggesting that Martha McCallum should because she's rich too. And then the Bernie bros idiotically cheering along. Yay! Pretty amazing. Bernie Sanders, by the way, is as radical as radical gets. And, and most of his plans don't have any on the ground actual teeth to them because they're never going to be implemented. He has to get all this stuff through Congress. So for example, Sanders was asked about the situation along the border and he suggested we should build housing along the border for illegals, but the Democratic Party just rejected funding for that stuff. Right now, if you are the president of the United States, we have overflowing yes. facilities. They need to go somewhere because they're in that asylum what about building? Where would you put them? What about building proper facilities for them right now? Where? That can be done Where? right on the border, right on the border at the same time. So the people who live on the border should have more facilities in their states, but sanctuary cities which have said they're right, open this, to accepting people should not take more. Now, this is a political act no, it's not. on the president. It's a real question. It's a, a real question. No, it's not a real question. Yes, it is. It's a political decision. Okay, it's a it's 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 a political decision. It's not a spending decision, except the Democrats have not provided the funding. Trump has been asking for billions of dollars in funding so that he can increase the number of beds. This was the specific immigration fight that just took place. Trump said, we need more money for beds on the border. Democrats, including Bernie Sanders, said no. And then Bernie Sanders is pitching, let's build more housing along the border for illegal immigrants. I mean, he's just he's incoherent. The fact that he is leading is a result of the stupid radicalism of a segment of the Democratic base that has no real relationship with reality. And that's the funniest part about all of this is that there are leaders in the Democratic Party looking at this askance and going, this is insane. I mean, Bernie Sanders, by the way, it is, it is worth noting, he's a radical on foreign policy too. He said that Ilhan Omar was not anti-Semitic. Why? She's just anti-Israel. Never mind, she hasn't actually critiqued any of Israel's policies. She has just suggested that Israel hypnotized the world, that pro-Israel Jewish money was behind American support of Israel. And she suggested dual loyalty of people who support Israel. But according to Bernie Sanders, that's just a critique of Israel. It's not anti-Semitic to be critical of a right-wing government in Israel. That is not anti-Semitic. Okay? Okay, that is not anti-Semitic. However, you know what is also not anti-Islamic? Opposing Ilhan Omar's radicalism. That's not anti-Islamic, Bernie Sanders. Well, all of this is handing a, a very large club to President Trump to wield against the Democrats, and they know it. President Trump, yesterday on the campaign trail, he said, listen, socialism, you know what that is? That's a method to get to the poorhouse. The numbers of uh, blue-collar jobs have recently grown the fastest rate in more than 31 years. So that's, you know, what we're talking about. They can talk all they want about socialism. All socialism is, is a method into the poorhouse. You know, uh, socialism is not so easy to beat when an economy is really doing well, like ours. We probably have the best economy. We may have the best economy we've ever had. Okay, he is right about all of that. He is also right that socialism, in the end, is going to be rejected by the American people. How do we know this? Because even top Democrats recognize this. So Nancy Pelosi has been having a very, very difficult time here because she knows that her own base loves the radical talk, but very few of them actually want the policy. So she has been desperately attempting to fend off all of the radicals inside her own party. This is why she speaks disparagingly about members of her own party. This is why in an interview yesterday with Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes, she suggested that there were just five, there, there were five radicals in the Democratic Party. She, was, she specifically said that AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, that's, she said that there was like five people. And then when she was asked, well, they're the progressives, aren't they? She said, no, I'm the progressive. Right now, there's a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. Are they going to be Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer progressives? Or are they going to be open radicals like Bernie Sanders, AOC, Ilhan Omar, and that ilk? So here's Nancy Pelosi yesterday rejecting socialism, saying, listen, I'm not in favor of socialism. 
Medicare for all. It's not only being pushed by some members of your caucus, but also some of the presidential candidates. And it is allowing the president to say you're all socialists. Do you know that when we did, when Medicare was done by the Congress at the time, under Lyndon Johnson, Ronald Reagan said Medicare will lead us to a uh, socialist dictatorship. This is an ongoing theme of the Republicans. However, I do reject socialism as a economic system. If people have that view, that's their view. That is not the view of the Democratic Party. Wow. Well, she's going to have to fend off people like AOC, who is, in fact, a socialist. She's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And that group explicitly says that they reject the profit motive. So Nancy Pelosi is going to have to battle that off. And she's not going to have a lot of success in doing that at the same time that she's hosting people like Jeremy Corbyn. Yesterday, Pelosi and Corbyn got together to apparently discuss myriad issues, not including anti-Semitism. It is pretty astonishing. She apparently said that she discussed with Jeremy Corbyn anti-Semitism during her UK trip. She said she had a candid discussion. She said, please have a candid discussion with Jeremy Corbyn today about the direction of Brexit, Northern Ireland, NATO, acting boldly on climate, protecting human rights, and the necessity of forcefully confronting anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Yeah, I'm sure that went great. I'm sure Nancy Pelosi had some very harsh words for Jeremy Corbyn, considering how few harsh words she has had for Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, open anti-Semites in her own caucus. So Nancy Pelosi wants it both ways. On the one hand, on the one hand, Nancy Pelosi wants the enthusiasm that comes along with this young socialist base. On the other hand, she doesn't want them taking control of the party. So how do you train the 16-year-old to take the wheel if you don't actually have a set of backup brakes in the passenger side of the seat? Nancy Pelosi is trying to grab that wheel, and the Democrats are shrugging her off. The newfangled Democrats are shrugging her off the same way they're shrugging off Joe Biden. Here is Nancy Pelosi, though, trying to downplay AOC's importance, saying, listen, anybody who is a Democrat in that district wins. When we won this election... It wasn't in districts like mine or Alexandria's. However, wonder, I'm, I'm, she's a wonderful member of Congress. I think all of our colleagues will attest. But those are districts that are solidly democratic. This glass of water would win with a D next to its name <laughs> in those districts. And not to, not to diminish the, the uh, exuberance and the personality in the rest of Alexandria and the other members. Okay, yes to diminish them. <laughs> She's saying, I want the exuberance. I don't want their thinking. So if they could door knock, that would be great. She's right, by the way. Anybody who's a Democrat wins in that district. I've been saying this for a long time. This idea that she is the leader of the newfangled Democrats because she won in a heavily blue district after winning 15,000 votes in a primary is patently insane. There are a bunch of Democrats who are in purple states or in red districts who have to battle for their political lives. This is somewhat like saying that the new wave of the Republican Party is whoever is the rightmost member of the Republican Party, even if there are a bunch of Republicans in purple states in Ohio, in Florida, who still have to win their district. Parties happen to be diverse because different areas of the country are diverse. But the media are treating AOC with kid gloves, and not only kid gloves, they are pushing her. They're really, and by the way, so is Pelosi. Pelosi stood, stood on the cover of Rolling Stone with Ilhan Omar and AOC. I think that Nancy Pelosi is trying to feed the alligator a little bit of the time, hoping that the alligator eats her last. It ain't going to eat her last. It's going to eat her first. There's a, rece- there's a reason that Rashida Tlaib came out yesterday and suggested that the leadership of the Democratic Party was racist. These kids, as Nancy Pelosi might put it, are not going to sit in the, car, in the back of the car for very long. They are going to try to take control of the car. They are doing that right now. And they don't know anything. Nancy Pelosi knows this. Chuck Schumer knows this. Everybody who watches politics knows this. The people... The AOC wing of the party is ignorant as all hell. Here's an example of this. So AOC yesterday, so fresh, so face, she was appearing on Yahoo News, and she suggested that America should cut aid to Israel because Benjamin Netanyahu, the elected prime minister of Israel, five times over, who's made territorial concessions, including the Y River Accords in the past, who unilaterally undertook a 10-month ceasefire with Hamas and a settlement stop, a settlement freeze in 2007, 2008, now this, this dolt, AOC, is suggesting that America should cut aid to Israel because of Netanyahu. Now, if you want to argue that America should cut foreign aid generally, that's an argument that I think is fair. But if you want to argue that America should continue giving aid to countries like Egypt and Saudi Arabia, that America should continue giving foreign aid to countries that are ruled by dictators, but should cut aid to Israel because you don't like Bibi Netanyahu, you are just a dolt. I think what we're really seeing is the ascent of authoritarianism across the world. I think that Netanyahu is a Trump-like figure. 
I think that we, you know, there are so many ways to, to approach this issue. I would hope and wish that a diplomatic approach could could uh, change some and, and impact policy. It doesn't all have to be legislative, but or should we? Well, would you? Well, yeah. Would you be in favor of reducing? military or economic aid to Israel? I mean, I think it's on the table. I think it's certainly on the table. And I think it's something that that can be discussed. A Trump-like figure? Okay, Bibi Netanyahu served in the special forces, went to MIT, served as foreign minister, served as prime minister, has a long political history, is one of the smartest men in politics. Like, he is not a Trump-like figure. This, This is absurd. It's absurd. But these are the dolts that the Democratic Party has decided must be treated with kid gloves, and then they're surprised when those people try to take control of the bus. Good luck with that. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So, things that I like today, obviously the burning of Notre Dame uh, is at the forefront of everybody's mind. The best movie about Notre Dame, the best book about Notre Dame is obviously The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo, which is a great book. There is yet to be a movie of Hunchback of Notre Dame that actually finishes finishes the book the way the book finishes. The book is extraordinarily dark. I mean, incredibly, incredibly dark. No movie could end that way. They all usually change the ending so that it's a happy ending. But the best version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame is the original 1939 version with Charles Lawton as the hunchback and Cedric Hardwick as the as the priest and Maureen O'Hara as Esmeralda. It's really a terrific film. Uh, it, it really does hold up and stands the test of time. Huge budget film, also from the best year in the history of movies, 1939. Here's a little bit of the preview. Okay, the movie itself, it's really good. Lawton is terrific. Uh, Lawton is one of the great actors of, of this time period in film. The music is great. It's just, it's really rich. If it were in color, and Cedric Hardwick is terrific, the whole movie is really, really good. So go check out the original Hunchback of Notre Dame. Also, it was the first movie from Maureen O'Hara, who was a beautiful woman back in the day. Uh, so go, as I say, really good movie. Was nominated for Best Picture, did not win but uh, worthy of a watch for sure. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Okay, so there's a story out of Arizona that is just devastating. Apparently, according to ArizonaCentral.com, immigration officials last week deported the spouse of a U.S. soldier killed in Afghanistan in 2010, leaving the couple's 12-year-old daughter in Phoenix, then abruptly reversed its decision on Monday when the deported man was allowed to return to the United States. Jose Gonzalez Carranza, 30, was arrested by Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers last Monday on the way to his welding job and then deported to Nogales, Sonora, early Thursday morning, according to Gonzalez Carranza and his attorney, Ezequiel Hernandez. Gonzalez Carranza was married to Army Private First Class Barbara Vieira, who was killed on September 18, 2010, while serving in the U.S. Army in Afghanistan. She was 22. Apparently, Gonzalez Carranza told the, Repub- the Arizona Republic he was allowed to re-enter the United States through the Deconchinsi port of entry in Nogales, Arizona. On Monday afternoon, he said he was then driven back to Phoenix, where ICE officials dropped him off at the agency's headquarters near downtown. ICE officials offered no explanation for the decision to allow him to return to the U.S. Hernandez believes the reversal was triggered by media attention the deportation received. Gonzalez Carrera said he was eager to see his daughter who lives with her grandparents. We obviously have to be careful in how we handle illegal immigrants in the United States illegally. This particular case is obviously ridiculous, so bad that the Immigration and Customs Enforcement had to reverse it. So his wife was killed in Afghanistan and then he was deported, leaving his daughter alone in Arizona. I think it is fair to say that we should be looking at giving citizenship to people whose spouses die in the line of duty in the military. Does that seem fair? And this, this would be a, a good place to start to change the law if the law does not already state that. Okay, other, t- other things that I hate. So MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell is already going after Pete Buttigieg. And this, this should be amusing. The Democratic woke left is saying that Buttigieg is not intersectional enough. So she says, well, maybe the reason Buttigieg is is rising in the polls is because he is less threatening, a gay white man is less threatening than a woman of color. There are a number of women who have not been getting very much traction, have been overlooked, shall we say, Klobuchar, Gillibrand, even Kamala Harris with her very big rollout has not been getting as much attention as Pete Buttigieg. Is it is it possible that, you know, a married gay white man from South Bend, Indiana, is less threatening to to some of the voters than a woman I think or a woman of color. I think that's one thing that Democrats, some Democrats are believing. Okay, well, this is amazing. If the Democrats turn the attack into Buttigieg, 
into he's not intersectional enough because he's just a gay guy as opposed to a woman of color. It'll be amusing to watch the Democrats tear each other apart over this whole thing. The real reason that Buttigieg is riding, rising in the polls is because Buttigieg comes off well because he is a, an articulate guy who happens to have a sterling intellectual background and also, more importantly, because he comes off as a moderate. He's running as a moderate. Now, he is not a moderate. His policies are not moderate. Every policy that Bernie Sanders espouses, Buttigieg basically follows. But I don't know that that's actually going to, to change anything for, for Buttigieg at the moment. He's going to continue to be portrayed as the optimistic moderate in the same way that John Edwards was in 2004. I don't think he has a pathway to the nomination, but I do think that it is very likely he's selected as a VP candidate on anybody's ticket given his early rise. Okay, we'll be back here a little bit later today with two additional hours. Lots of guests today. You're going to want to stop by. We've got Bishop Barron showing up to talk about Notre Dame Cathedral. We've got Daniel Hannon, who is stopping by. We've got Dennis Miller stopping by. So you're definitely going to want to be part of the show today. Go check it out over at dailywire.com. Subscribe. We always appreciate it. And we'll see you then. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. The facade of Notre Dame remains, but the heart of the 800-year-old cathedral has been turned to ash. Is there any more fitting metaphor for Western civilization? We will analyze appearance versus reality from Paris to the 2020 primaries. Check it out at dailywire.com. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. <laughs> 